Mark chapter 8, verses 31 through 38. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with the disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up the cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father and the holy angels. May God bless the reading of his word. Please be seated. Good evening. Thanks for worshiping with us tonight. It's great to see you tonight. As Bo said, please stick around afterwards for some pumpkin pie and cookies and decaf coffee and also to meet someone um, or just spend time together around this holiday season. Kids can head on down. You're going to go this way, actually. Go on this way and meet up with your teachers and head down to your class. We'll see you in a little bit. Before we jump into the sermon text for tonight, I want to make you aware of a couple of things uh, that are coming up. First, as usual, you can scan this QR code and you'll find a link for a number of ways that you can get involved here at Grace. I want to draw your attention to one in particular, and that's volunteering. You can express interest in serving. If you're on our weekly email list, you also got an email about this with a, a link to a survey where you can either sign up to serve or you can indicate how you would like to to serve or how your service will change once we move to Sunday mornings. As we've talked about for a couple weeks now, we're going to move to Sunday mornings in the new year, and that may impact um, how you serve or when you serve or where you serve, and so please let us know on that survey. As you saw on that survey, in the email about the survey, um, we're giving away some Java House gift cards. We're going to randomly select three names that fill out that survey. That is us telling you please fill out the survey. So um, that will really help us get organized and have what we need. There's a few minor changes that we're making to things like hospitality and our chair setup. And so we need to make sure we have full team of volunteers to make that happen on Sunday mornings when we come back from the holidays. Also want to let you know, this may be new information to you, but we will have a Christmas Eve candlelight service right here, uh, five o'clock. Christmas Eve is a Sunday, so we'll have service as normal, 5 o'clock. It'll be our last evening service, so if you want to, you know, pay your respects to evening services, that's the time you can do that too. But we're just going to have a candlelight service. We are going to pray. We are going to sing uh, some Christmas hymns. Uh, we're going to have candles. Uh, we're going to gather around and have a family worship time. So if you're in town, if you have family in town, pl- please bring them along, and we will have a night of worship on Christmas Eve together. We're about to reach the halfway point tonight, not only in the book of Mark, but also our sermon series as we go through Mark. And as we reach the halfway point, as we reach the end of chapter 8, before we can move on, Jesus has a question for us, 
and he has a question for his disciples. And we really can't move on with Mark, and we really can't move on with our sermon series, and I would argue that we really can't move forward in our lives until we answer this question that Jesus poses to his disciples, as well as to us. His disciples must answer this question, and we must answer this question. The question that he has for them and for us tonight is, who do you say that I am? Jesus asks his disciples and he asks us tonight, who do you say that I am? Let's pray and then we'll jump into the text tonight. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have spoken. Thank you that we have your word to know the things that you say. We can know who you are. And God, we pray that you would show us plainly who you are, Jesus. As you spoke plainly to your disciples, we pray that you would speak plainly to us that each one would hear exactly what you would have for us tonight, and then we would have ears to hear, we would have minds that understand the things that you say, that we would have hearts that believe what you have to say to us, and that we would be ready to obey you with our hands and with our feet. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Personality tests in America are a $2 billion industry billion with a B, $2 billion industry. And by the year 2027, it's estimated that it will be a $6.5 billion industry. Now, I have nothing against personality tests. I've taken all of them. I know what all my things are, the Myers-Briggs, the Enneagram, the Strength Finders. I've done all the things. I've not got nothing against personality tests. But one thing that this number, these billions of dollars shows us is that we are desperately trying to find an answer to the question, who am I? Who am I? But instead of asking who we are, we need to ask a different question. And Jesus is going to show us what that question is. And not only that, he's going to show us why he is the answer. So if you haven't already, please open to Mark chapter 8. We're going to start actually in verse 27, and we're going to work our way through uh, what Pastor Jeff read for us tonight. So Mark chapter 8, and we'll start in verse 27. It will also be up here on the screen. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am. Who do people say that I am? So first, Jesus and his disciples are walking along the way. And this isn't the main point of tonight, but it's interesting to me how often Jesus disciples and teaches his disciples as they're going along the way, as they're traveling from one place to another. The scribes and the Pharisees taught in the temple. Jesus most often taught his disciples and the people as he was going along the way. Just as parents are instructed in Deuteronomy 6 to pass along the faith to their kids and a love for God to the kids, their kids as they go along the way. We see Jesus discipling in the same way. They're going to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. A couple things you need to know about this. These are the villages that are at the base of a mountain that are on the northernmost reaches of where Jesus has been doing his ministry. I don't have the laser pointer with the map this week, but you kind of have gotten the idea of where we're at in Mark. This is like the beginnings of the Gentile territories. It's the beginning of the pagan territories where Jews definitely didn't go, but civilized Roman Empire folks did not go either. 
So this is where Jesus and his disciples are going. The other thing you need to know about this is that in the passage next week, Jesus and his disciples are going to kind of go up into the mountains. If you know the transfiguration, we're going to take a look at that next week. That takes place on a mountain. They're basically walking towards the base of that mountain. Then next week, they're going to go up on the mountain and they're going to experience the transfiguration, three of his disciples. And then they're going to come down. And from that point forward, they are going to march back to Jerusalem and Jesus will never leave Jerusalem. Because at the at midway point of Mark chapter 9, we begin Jesus very quickly heading towards his death. We're going to get some clues as to why that is in our scripture tonight. As Jesus goes along the way, he has a question for his disciples and that question is, who do people say that I am. Not you, but who do the people? And he's going to clarify what he means by the people for us in verse 28. And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Jesus answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. This is what the people were saying of Jesus. We've been talking about how Jesus had a lot of fans. He had a lot of skeptics. He had a lot of people following him around that hadn't yet decided to follow him. They were just there for a show or trying to see what this Jesus was doing. The people, the chief priests, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the other Jewish people were saying that he was some of these things listed here. Well, some say he's John the Baptist. Some say he's Elijah. Some say he's a prophet. I would also add that some to this day have this understanding of Jesus. Jesus is thought of as a historical figure and he is fondly thought of by religious people and irreligious people alike. So Jesus is asking them, who do the people say that I am? And here is a clue for us of some of the things that the people are saying about Jesus. Then Jesus turns this question and he makes it much more poignant. And it's the question he has for the disciples as well as us tonight. Who do you say that I am? He wants to know who the disciples think Jesus is at this point in his ministry. And the reason that he wants to know this, the reason he needs to know this, is because they're going to march down from this area back into Jerusalem and Jesus is going to march to his death. We're about to read that he starts speaking to them plainly about what he is about to experience. And before they experience it, he needs to know from them, who do you say that I am? Are you a fan? Are you a skeptic? Or are you really going to follow me? Jesus' response, or Peter's response to Jesus when he asks, who do you say that I am? Is, you are the Christ. When we read the word Christ in the New Testament, we can think of the word anointed, because that's what it means. It means anointed, the anointed one. The word anointed is used very often in the Old Testament. It is always for a person or a thing set aside for the purposes of God. It is most often used for kings and priests and prophets, people that had an official role, an official office in the Jewish people. They were anointed. Kings were anointed. They were set apart for the purposes of God. 
There was religious relics and things they used for temple worship that were anointed and set aside for the purposes of God. But Peter here doesn't say that you are a Christ. He doesn't say you are Christ. He doesn't just say that he's anointed. He says you are the Christ, the anointed one. Peter says this because he's starting to connect the dots of who Jesus really is. That Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is set aside for the special purposes of God. And because of this, we read in verse 31, he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. Peter's response, he took him aside and he began to rebuke him. Because they've connected the dots, Jesus here gives them the last piece of the puzzle. He says, yes, I'm the anointed one. I'm the son of man. I'm the one set apart. I'm the one prophesied in the Old Testament. But I haven't come to be an earthly king. First, I have to give my life. I must die. I must suffer. It's the reason that I came. Jesus here is not saying, he's not predicting that he will die. He's saying it's the thing he came to do. That's why he says, I must suffer and die. The son of man. The son of man is what Ezekiel prophesies that that the Messiah will be like. It's what the book of Daniel says the Messiah will be. He will be a son of man. Jesus is saying, that's me. But before I can be an earthly king, I have to be rejected. I have to suffer many things. But then three days later, I will rise again. Here, Jesus is not speaking metaphorically. He's speaking plainly about where he's headed. And who he is. Then we read that Peter rebukes him. This word rebuke is the same language that we have read throughout Mark when Jesus rebukes the Pharisees or even when he rebukes demons out of people. This is strong language. This is not, Jesus, I think you may be in error here. It's rebuking him. It's in strong terms. He's rebuking him because he says, okay, John the Baptist prepared the way and he gave his life. Elijah suffered many things, but you're the anointed one. You're the Messiah. You're the king of all kings. And now you're saying you're going to suffer? He rebukes Jesus because he can't wrap his head around a suffering Messiah. So he rebukes Jesus. Peter thinks, as many Jews did, that the Messiah would come to conquer earthly kingdoms and earthly kings and finally deliver his people Israel from the hands of those that had oppressed them for centuries. They'd been oppressed time and time again by these great empires. So Peter rebukes Jesus. What is Jesus' response? But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. First thing of note here is that we see that Peter is speaking on behalf of the other disciples. Peter gets a bad rap 
for the things he says and does, and sometimes he earns that. But here he is representing the, what the majority of the disciples are thinking. How many of you, when you were growing up, didn't want to ask mom and dad for something for whatever reason, and so you sent your little brother or sister to ask for you? You sent the little brother or sister because you knew that they would go for you, and so you sent them up to ask mom and dad for the thing that you wanted. Mom, dad, can we watch a movie? Can we have candy? Can we have ice cream? Can we go wherever we want to go? I'm not going to name names, but it happened in my house today, as a matter of fact. That's what's happening here. The disciples send Peter to speak for them and rebuke Jesus, saying, no, Jesus, this is not the way this is supposed to happen. In Jesus' response, he is not saying that Peter is Satan. He's saying that there is a tempting, wrong, worldly, man-made way of thinking behind what Peter is saying and the other disciples are thinking. There is a temptation in this too. Jesus is speaking out in these strong terms saying this is a man-made idea. This is an idea from Satan. This is an accusation from Satan. Part of why he speaks out in this way, I believe, is because there's a temptation here. Think of Jesus in the garden right before he's arrested and he says, Father, if there's any other way that this can be accomplished. Please take this cup from me. Jesus sees a temptation in this to take an earthly throne or to run away from suffering or to let them put a crown on him as the leader and king of the Jews to sit on a throne that he rightfully deserved to sit on. But he says, you have in mind the things of man and says, get behind me. That idea has no place in what the Father has called me to do. Now, he has a message for the crowd. Verse 34, And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his soul? We're going to spend the rest of our time here because there's so much going on here. This is what Jesus says it looks like to really follow him. And he makes it plain where he's headed as well. So first, he says three things in succession and tells us what it looks like to follow him. He says, if anyone would come after me, he needs to do three things. Deny himself, take up his cross, follow me. Let's take them one at a time. First, deny self. Jesus was the first to say, I'm, I have to deny myself. I have to deny sitting on an earthly throne. I have to deny what my flesh wants, which is to escape pain, because it's the most human reaction to pain, is to try to escape it. Jesus was fully God, but he was also fully man. Jesus had to deny himself, so he says to follow me, you will also have to deny self. He's also saying here that there is a self to be denied. We have a self that is raging inside of us that wants to self-preserve. 
that wants to be self-safe, that wants to take care of and focus on self. So when Jesus says, deny yourself, it goes against every instinct inside of us to preserve ourselves, protect ourselves, keep ourselves safe, do what's best for self. So first, he says, deny yourself. Second, he says, take up your cross. There are three ways we can think about Jesus saying this. And I realized as I was studying this passage, I think of two of them, but I don't think of the third one. And it's actually the right way to think about it. So I came to a realization here, studying this passage, also talking about it with my community group. So there are three things that Jesus could mean here. And I think the first two are wrong. The first one is he could be speaking of taking up your cross and following him in a martyr's death. Jesus is definitely saying that some will have to do that because throughout time, people have had to give their life because of their profession of faith. And throughout history, from this moment until now, there has been some people group, some country, some regime, somewhere in the world where if you say the name of Christ or say you are a Christian, it can cost you your life. So yes, Jesus definitely knows and means that even all of them standing there would have to give their lives for him. So is he speaking of a literal taking up your cross and you may have to sacrifice your life? Sure, but that's not all. Second, it could be completely metaphorical. Is he completely speaking a metaphor? This is how we usually in the American modern West think of it, that he's talking about metaphor. We need to be willing to sacrifice. We need to give up something for Lent. We need to do things that are hard for us. We need to deny our selfish or even sinful impulses. And we put it metaphorically. It's even become like a slang or a euphemism or a bumper sticker where there's, if there's anything that we don't like, we say, well, this is my cross to bear. This is my cross to bear. It's kind of the opposite of hashtag blessed. Hashtag blessed is just, you know, I'm thankful that I have good coffee or whatever. This is kind of the opposite of that. This is my cross to bear. I don't think Jesus is speaking in metaphors here either. The third option. When he says, take up your cross... He is asking you to make a decision if you're actually going to follow him or not. Are you really going to follow me wherever it takes you? Really? Are you really going to follow me? Not just with your lips. Not just saying you have faith. Not just saying you're my disciple. But do your hands and your feet and your life and your money and your things and your relationship and everything belong to him. That's his challenge for them. And then third, he says, follow me. Follow me. He's being very plain about where he's headed. And he's saying, are you following me or not? Are you a fan? Are you a skeptic? Or are you really going to follow me? Now, we have these three things. But it's important also for us to pay attention to the order and the grammar that is being used here in the original Greek. It is not clear in the English. It is very clear in the Greek. The first two things that Jesus says is deny and take up your cross. There's two things you need to know about the Greek word that he uses for both of those. They're both in the past and they're both a one-time action. They're both in the past and they're a one-time action. He's saying deny yourself, take up your cross. 
Those are the first two steps. And you have to do those two steps together, denying yourself and taking up your cross. And then there's a third step after that, and that's keep following me. And that is an ongoing with no end verb. Present active imperative is what it's called. It's present, it's going on now, it's active, and it's an imperative, you have to do it. So the first two are a past action, and the third is a process of following Jesus. Guys, I don't want to be a grammar, Greek, Nazi, weirdo, you know, with this, but this is really important, and this goofs up our discipleship. Our focus is on, oh, I got to deny myself, I got to deny myself, I got to deny myself, I got to take up my cross, I got to take up my cross. And it just feels like constant dying over and over and over and over again. And it's really hard. It's really hard. Jesus here is saying, don't be surprised when following me is hard. Because when you decided to follow me, you made a commitment to deny yourself and to take up your cross and follow me wherever I am going. When we think this way, hiccups, heartache, suffering are not a surprise because we counted the cost first. That's what Jesus is ultimately saying here. Count the cost first, and then once you decide to follow me, keep following me important that we think through the order of operations here. Next, to summarize, this is what he says. It can get confusing with the grammar. It's also a very common phrase, so we can get lost in it. But to summarize, this is what Jesus says. Whoever would save his soul, his heart, will lose it. But whoever loses his soul, heart, will find yourself. The reason I put soul and heart and yourself up there is that Jesus is talking about here the whole being, yourself. The Greek word that's used here is the same root word as psychology. Your whole psyche, yourself, all of who you are is what he's talking about. Again, English gets in trouble here. We don't have a great word that goes with this. So the English translators will say heart, they will say soul, They don't very often say self, but that's probably the closest. But this is what Jesus is saying. If you're trying to save your essence of self, not just your physical life, but all that you are, if you're trying to save all that you are on your own, save it for yourself, self-persevere, self-preserve, self-safety, then you're going to lose the thing you're trying to save. But if you let go of that, if you lose yourself, you'll find your true self. That's what Jesus is saying. We're going to break this down even more into four, the four different things he's saying here. And this is going to be our, basically our application for tonight. So we're going to take some time going through this. So we're going to break it down into four questions. How do we try to save our lives? How do we try to save ourselves? One way is through religion and morality. If I do good works, if I go to the right church, if I have the right theology, if I have moral purity, then I will preserve myself. I will be worthy of saving, or I can even save myself. 
And this isn't just for religious folks. It's found in our world and the the ways of thinking of man as well. The idea of tolerance and acceptance and being on the right side of history is just a new form of non-religious religion. It's a way of thinking. It's a thought pattern that tries to salvage, I am right. I'm on the right side of this issue. Just a way of preserving self. We try to save ourselves through self-help, self-esteem, enlightenment, individualism. We try to preserve and save ourselves through altruism and activism, doing good in our world to save ourselves or to save humanity. It's just a few of the categories that we operate in when we're trying to save our sense of self, preserve self feel good about self, look good in the eyes of other people. We try to justify ourselves before God. We try to justify ourselves before others. We try to justify ourselves to family and even to ourself in order to save our life. But when we do this, we actually lose it. We lose our sense of self. The thing we're trying to protect, the thing we're trying to keep safe, we actually lose it. We end up with a loss of faith. We end up with a loss of focus. We take our eyes off the things that are actually most important and get caught up with all the fun things we have to do in life or get caught up in the rat race of always making more money or always advancing our career or our studies. We get to a point of numbness where we don't feel strongly about anything, including the good news of what Jesus has done for us. How do we lose our sense of self? We're told over and over and over again to do it on our own and we don't need anybody. And then we go out into the world with that mentality and try to accomplish just about anything and fall flat on our face. And our relationships fall apart. We don't know how to build relationships with real human beings in person like we once could, or maybe we never have. And we feel all alone. We're trying to be successful. We're trying to preserve our life. We're trying to have a sense of self, but it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy and we lose ourself. So what is the opposite of that? How do we lose it for Christ's and the gospel's sake? That's what Jesus says. Whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's sake will find true life. So how do we lose our life for Christ's sake? I put together this diagram, this illustration, and all diagrams, all metaphors, all illustrations fall apart at some point. But this, putting this together, helped me connect some dots in my head, and I hope it does for you as well, to explain what is Jesus talking about when it says to lose ourselves for his sake. So here's a diagram of some ways we subconsciously think about our life with Jesus. Here's one way to think about our life with Jesus. This is, we fill our life with self. We fill our life with all of these things that we've been talking about and more. And Jesus just hovers around the perimeter. He just kind of orbits around the perimeter. When you see this, you know, well, I can identify some things in my life or maybe some times in my life when that's been true. But 
That seems kind of extreme, that Jesus is just totally on the periphery. So maybe that doesn't quite capture the way things are, or you instinctively know that isn't how it's supposed to be. Here's another way to think about things. Okay, well, Jesus is everything, right? That sounds spiritual. That sounds godly. That sounds Christian. Then Jesus is everything. Well, then I'm just orbiting along the outside, and I completely lose any sense of self, any free will, any decision-making rights. That doesn't sound right. That doesn't seem right either. So there's a third way to think about things. Oh, we're getting closer, right? We're getting closer. Okay, this is how we most often think about things. We read our Bible, we spend time with group, we come to church, we have some kind of like spiritual insight, and we start thinking about our life in terms of this. I'm going to share more of my life with Jesus. However, there's a problem with this too. I've lived a lot of my life like this. In this kind of life, Jesus has certain parts and I have the rest. This sounds nice, but it doesn't really work. And it leads to a divided, dualistic life where sometimes we get all excited about the good news in Jesus, and then other times it's like we can't even remember that there is good news at all. So this is not right. Although it sounds right, it looks right. I think the most biblical way to think about things, at least in the you know, kind of universe of my diagram here, is this where there is a blurring of the lines and the colors where we and Jesus are so connected and we are in Christ and he in us to the point where more and more of our life is submitted to him. I think this is what the Apostle Paul is getting at when 84 times in the New Testament he uses the phrase, in Christ. One theologian says that the idea and the phrase in Christ is the web that holds all of Paul's theology together. If you include the phrase in him, which every time he says in him, he means in Christ, you can add another 82 instances onto the 84 I just mentioned. Over 160 times Paul says in Christ, in him. We are not made for a divided life where Jesus has part and we have the other half. We were not made to just be spiritual beings or to look forward to just some ethereal heaven someday after we die. No, we were made to be united with our Savior. And that's what Jesus is describing. When we lose ourselves for his sake and for the gospel's sake, he fills up more of our lives and gives us a greater sense of true self, who we truly are, to the point where the spirit and the body are working together and we can worship God fully embodied. I think this is what Paul is describing in Galatians 2. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That is a life goal, to live that way. 
so how do we find ourselves? This gives us a better identity. Because we better not try to find our identity in our political life or societal life or familial life. We better not find our identity from what's on our CV or what we hope to be on our CV someday. The gospel offers us true identity. True identity, no matter what your family of origin was like, no matter how messed up your Thanksgiving dinner is going to be, or if it doesn't exist at all, no matter what you have done, no matter when you came to Christ, no matter what your testimony is, no matter what your current struggle is, your identity is, you were made in the image of God. You can be redeemed by the blood of Christ, and then you're given a mission. It's called the gospel of being messengers of reconciliation that you are in Christ and he's in you and other people can experience that good news too. This is what it looks like, answering these questions. This is what it looks like to have the mind of Christ instead of having our mind on the things of man, which is what Jesus accuses Peter of doing. This is the good news. The gospel of self The gospel of man, having our mind on the things of man, bad news. The good news of the Christ is truly good news. We'll conclude with verse 37. For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. What he is saying here is that one day we will stand before a righteous and good and holy judge. He's saying here, what will you have to show for yourself in that day? Will you have a handful of stuff, a handful of self It's a little bit terrifying to think of standing before God someday and he's like, what do you have to show for yourself and our hands are empty? But that's not the story. The true nightmare is that we'll stand before God and we're at risk of standing before God and our hands are full of other stuff, of self, of the things of man, of our man-made kingdoms. That's what Jesus is getting at here. The kingdom of God looks like foolishness, just like it did to Peter, because it's a suffering Messiah. But Jesus, in verse 31, says, I must suffer, be rejected, die, and rise. That's the gospel of what Jesus has done for us. That's the good news of what Jesus has done for us. And he's telling us tonight that when we deny ourselves when we take up our cross and follow him, there will be times when we suffer. There will be times when we feel rejected. There may be a time that we die for our faith or just die because we live in a fallen world, but he is also promising us that with him we will rise. We will suffer. We will be rejected Following Jesus will cost us everything, but he gives us everything in return. There's a lot of places we could have ended tonight, but I couldn't think of a better way to put a summary statement on everything that we've learned tonight than what Paul himself writes 
in Philippians. I'm going to read it to you. Receive these words from Philippians 3, verses 8 through 11. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes from faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings becoming like him in his death, but that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Paul has answered the question that Jesus asks, who do you say that I am? And what was Paul's answer? You're everything. Jesus is our everything. That's the good news of the gospel. Would you stand with me? I want to encourage you tonight to wrestle with the question, who do you say that I am? Jesus is asking you tonight, who do you say that I am? And there's only one answer that counts. You are the Christ, the Messiah, the Savior of the world. Before Jesus could sit on an earthly throne, he had to die a martyr's death outside of the city so that we could one day be with him, rise with him, and live in his kingdom, his kingdom to come. One day there will be a new heaven and a new earth, and we are invited into that kingdom because of what Christ has done for us. If you would like to pray with someone or would like help with that answer of who Jesus is, There will be prayer team members right up here. Um, You'll be here for a while eating pumpkin pie. Feel free to come up and talk to one of them and pray with them. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we end tonight on our feet as our commitment to you that we intend to love you with all of our heart, soul, mind, strength, body, hands, feet, minds, lips as we leave this place. Thank you, Jesus, that you go with us. Thank you that your spirit is with us. God, we pray that we would honor you. We pray that the words of our mouth and the meditations of our heart would be pleasing to you. We pray that we would count the cost and see that you are worthy of being followed with our very lives. May we be a people, may we be a church that denies ourselves takes up our cross and follows you day by day. Jesus, thank you for what you've called us to. Thank you for the promise of the good news of the gospel of what Jesus has done for us. It's in his name we pray. Amen.